This is the Volleyball Coaching Wizards podcast, covering everything coaching. Motivated and inspired by interviews and conversations with some of the world's great volleyball coaches. To learn more about the project, visit VolleyballCoachingWizards.com. Now here are your hosts, John Foreman and Mark Levijou. Welcome to episode 25 of the podcast. As you'll hear, we recorded this one actually ahead of uh, episode 24 during the Olympic tournament, I think during the first week. So we make uh, some kind of real-time references to what we see. Uh, the, the primary starting point of this episode was meant to be uh, some comments made by Aussie beach coach Craig Marshall on kind of the key skills of, of good coaches. Um, and, and Craig has some really interesting things to say about that. And we did start there. And I'd like to think that we actually ended talking about that as well. But somewhere in between, we got a little bit sidetracked talking about some other stuff related to coaching demeanor and timeouts and behavior on the sideline and things like that, which hopefully you'll find interesting or entertaining, or at least a little bit of both. Uh, so with that, I'll, uh, I'll let you get on with the show. What are the most important qualities of the coach? Now, by that I have in my mind, Ooh, dear. is it technical, is it tactical, is it organizational, is it communication, is it uh, empathy, is it, what, what in, are the things that are most in, important? Yeah, well in my job, the way I see it, you've got to be, you've got to be what's required in the moment. <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to fit into that moment mm-hmm. and deliver what's required so empathy is critical right and how you teach yourself empathy is an interesting one Um, you can never be in someone else's shoes you can pretend you know what but it's really really hard to say 100% I know exactly what that guy's going through yeah but we think we do we always think we know always think we do and I've learned over time that, you know, a, a coach needs to be confident. Players get their yes. belief system through the coaching group, you know. Yes. Um, but sometimes you're missing things because you've you got to be confident. You've got to act like you know. And so, yes. you know, I know what you're going through and you want to come across as, mm-hmm. but sometimes that's, that isn't empathy. Yeah. You know, I think uh, there's a stuff... Um, Brene Brown uh, does mm-hmm. a text talk on YouTube yeah. on vulnerability. Yeah. And she talks about vulnerability as the uh, um, important or critical um, for innovation. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not vulnerable, then you're not prepared to take the risk. And he said that, you know, major companies just, they're not prepared for people to be vulnerable or their company to be vulnerable. Yeah. They want the stuff, but they don't want to. And it's never a good sign for people to come across as being vulnerable, yes. right? It comes across as weak and, yes. you know, so I've been trying to teach athletes that you, there are right times to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and your team, within your team framework, you can be vulnerable because you can be innovative from there. But in that talk, she talked about empathy and said empathy is, think about it like a big dark hole. Yeah. And I'm not sure I'm going to get this exactly right. So let's, this is the way I see it. There's mm-hmm. this big dark hole and you got your friend down in your big dark hole. There's nothing down there. Mm-hmm. It's just black and it's dumb. And they're yeah. down there and they can't get out. Yeah. 
and then you're talking to them from up the top, down the hole, going, oh, you know, it looks dark and cold down there. You must be hungry. Here's a blanket. Here's some food. And you throw it all down there. Yeah. And people see that as empathy. Mm-hmm. She said, that's not empathy. Mm-hmm. Empathy is going down in the hole. Yeah. Sitting there with them and going, hmm, it is dark and cold down here. Yeah. That's empathy. Yeah. And I think it's really, really hard sometimes to know or to actually go through what yeah. people are going through. Even right now, we didn't qualify in this Olympic cycle and mm-hmm. it's devastating. Mm. But each person's taking it in their own way. Yeah. But a coach needs to be able to find a way or do everything they can to possibly empathise with that because they're going through their own stuff as well. Yeah. And all you can do is start thinking, they're going, feeling like I am and they're going through it. And it's not. People are so different. So empathy and therefore communication and what comes with communication is conflict resolution, mm-hmm. you know, and, and upskilling yourself on how to be part of that. Because if you don't have a team that has conflict, you don't have a team. Yep. You don't have a high performance team. Mm-hmm. You need to have conflict. You need different ideas. Mm-hmm. But if the strongest personality always gets their ideas across, it's not always best for the team. No. So you got to work a way where people feel comfortable about putting ideas on there and there is some conflict resolution. I, I think the obvious things in coaching is tactical and technical. If you don't have a tactical and technical background, mm-hmm. you can still be a great coach, but you need to get someone who's doing that. Yeah. You know? So if you've got unlimited resources financially and you can buy the right people in, then I consider you a great coach, but in my area, we don't have those sort of funds. So I feel like if you've got to be at least great at, at those areas. Technical and tactical. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if and I always think you've got to be working with the players to keep growing it and improving it. Um, so I think sometimes. If you feel like it's all coming from you, mm-hmm. they'll only be as good as your ideas. So yep. you've got to be able to, a good coach broadens or gets people thinking at least helping the team grow. So yep. you've got to be a good facilitator. Um, yep. There's probably a hundred other things that I think are important, but I'm, yeah, not good, yeah. I'm not good at them. All right, so the question that I ask Craig there and that I ask in all the interviews is, uh, just trying to get at, at what uh, individual coaches think are, are the most Im- important uh, qualities that a coach needs because as we know coaching is really multifaceted it encompasses so many different things and uh, both personal and technical and tactical and and all those things and I I just wonder from each coach what they think might be uh, might be the most important and um, and you get some obviously some interesting answers because it's an interesting question. But but I thought that Craig really nailed it on the on the head when when he said that it wasn't any one quality that was more important, but that at any moment in a in a coaching situation, it requires something something different. And uh, firstly, I, I think it's a great answer and maybe a perfect answer and secondly it 
really hark back to the interview with Sue Gazansky talking about developing team culture when her response was essentially the, the same response that the team culture is not any one thing that you do but it's everything you do so I, I just like both of those answers and that the implication or the statement that, that coaching is not one thing it's just thousands of of uh, interactive uh, interactive things yeah for sure and, and I find it interesting where he, he extends that he talks a lot about empathy mm -hmm. then he then he talks about the, the coaches need to be confident potentially to the point where maybe you're not seeing everything because you have to be confident and you have to seem like you know it all <laughs> which which is an interesting contradiction um, I mean, not contra contradiction is probably not quite the right word, but it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition yeah. in, in that we we need to be constantly developing, and Todd Maddox brought this up in, in his interview, is you know, he talks about how over the course of the season, you still need to be learning. And, mm -hmm. and so, obviously, Craig uses the term vulnerability in, in his discussion here. So there needs to be that recognition that yeah, you don't know it all, you know. While at the same time, on the other side of it, you're projecting to your players and maybe to your staff and whoever else that you do know it all. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting little corner that we we've got ourselves in, trying to balance those two things. I I don't know how best to, or how exactly they described it, but I would interpret that slightly differently and say that it's not that the coach needs to convey that they know it all, because I, I don't think that anybody really believes that somebody, or beyond junior level, believes that anybody might know it all, but that they are able to provide solutions. Right. And the solution might not be this minute. Obviously, in a game, the solution has to be very quick, but uh, the solution can can take some time. So a player can can ask for a, a question of a technical tactical nature, and so and it's okay, I think, for the coach there to say, "I don't know right now, but I can get the answer," and then come back with the answer. So the not necessarily knowing it all, but being able to provide solutions. Right. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's kind of takes us into that the discussion we've had with a couple of people before about which is more important, training or game day. And it, those, those two reflect exactly the, those two sides of it. On game day, you're expected to have the, have the solution right now. Yeah. Whereas in training situation, you may not have the solution and you've, you've probably got more room to to experiment and say, okay, well, let's, well, let's try this or have have the interaction with the athlete and say, okay, let's let's sort it out together. We've got the time to do it. The origin of the of those two questions is actually the, a similar starting point uh, about qualities and about um, the, so including personal qualities, but then the direct game versus uh, practice part. So uh, yeah, it's it's deliberately framed in that way. But I see. I, the providing solutions thing. This uh, this comes to sort of the conduct of the coach during the match. So 
my my personal my personal feeling is that the the players look to the coach and they get their uh, feeling their confidence their whatever it is from from the coach so it all begins from there it could be from another leader but we're uh, we're implying in this whole project that the coach is the most important leader so we'll stick with that and so for that reason I've chosen personally I've chosen the demeanor that uh, that I have to be fairly calm to, to present that um, that picture to the team that whatever the situation is it's not a big deal it's not a big stress we have a solution um, or we can find a solution or we still have time or that's the the, the message that I'm always trying to, to sell to my guys and I don't think that personally I don't think that jumping up and down on the sideline and constantly arguing and complaining and screaming and yelling uh, really does that. Well, it's, it's interesting to watch the, the coaches in the Olympics, and, and most of them, I think, do seem to be fairly calm. Um, every once in a while, even the calm ones that get a little hot under the collar, uh, you know, if they think something didn't go right or <laughs> if they have a problem with the touchpad. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but that's a lot of that stuff is, is more about technical things it seems like, uh, than it is about what their team's doing on the court. Not, which isn't obviously to say that you know, they don't get upset if the team is, is doing things they don't really approve of, um, but the demeanors do seem relatively calm in this, in this group of coaches. That's an interesting point. I, I hadn't thought of it um, um, directly like that, but I haven't seen any um, Kind of blow-ups, any shows, any great shows of emotions by any of the coaches at this point. Seen a lot by players, but uh, yeah, a couple of guys going under the net. But yeah, but at this point in the tournaments, after three after three game days, um, the coaches have uh, maintained a, a pretty quiet, um, controlled demeanor. Yeah, uh, although they were. I don't know if you caught this yet, but uh, the, the American commentators were talking about Bernardino being a, a volcano at times, um, and that uh, every once in a while things just set him off and he goes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, like you know, there's, there's probably a cultural element to that as well. You know, you've got certain cultures where emotion is expected more than in others. That that is a good point too, because. The coach always has to somehow fit into whatever the cultural um, expectations of the of the team of the of the team are, and that can be a method of training. That can be that can be a bunch of things. So um, the display of emotion, anger for one for, is one thing. So a lot of my experience, there are quite a few uh, cultures that expect the coach to be angry, and if the coach doesn't get angry at certain things, then um, they think the coach is. Uh, one description I I heard was a, uh, that a coach was a junior coach because he didn't uh, he didn't mark his line very well. Because junior coaches are the most stable, calm, relaxed people in the world. I did find I did find that a little bit odd, but 
I guess at this point I have a lot fewer direct contacts with junior coaches than uh, than seniors. So I was I was prepared to um, accept his his description. Well, it, I mean, it's interesting that you say it that way. That you know, I had that, or I suspect that was an experience that I had when I was in Sweden, because I, to like you, I think, and I've I've felt in the feedback that I've gotten from my players over the years that if I'm calm, it's better for them. You know, they can look over, and, and if things are getting a little hairy, they can look over at me, and I'm not freaking out about it or whatever. And they can take something out of that that's positive. Uh, so when I was in Sweden, I guy got questions from people in the press and and elsewhere. You know, why are you so calm? I'm like, well, there's no real reason to get crazy over here. I don't need to yell at them. They usually know when they're not playing well. You know, it's not doesn't take me to to tell point it out to them. Uh, but you know, every once in a while, something happens and you get a little <laughs> a little frustrated. Um, and then there's there's what's going on inside versus what's going on outside, of course. The the whole thing about about anger and expression of anger is something I I I just in general find quite perplexing, and that there's an expectation from outside that the job of the coach is specifically to shout at players, and uh, this I don't I don't really understand. The, uh, why this should be. I guess I understand the origin of it in that that's the way it has been for a long time. But uh, you, you hear it from journalists, you hear it on TV commentary, you, you watch a soccer game and if the one team's playing better in the second half, you always hear the commentator say that, that they got a rocket at halftime or paint peeling or right. you know, yeah. Alex Ferguson's hair dryers. Why? Why is the expectation that people are better at performing at something when somebody shouts at them? Because I'm fairly confident that's not the uh, generally accepted societal expectation. Well, and I think it goes to the point that you make about timeouts and substitutions and all that is they want to see you doing something. They expect <laughs> you to be doing something. And yes. yelling and screaming is doing something. Standing there seemingly emotionlessly isn't actually doing anything. You know, at least nothing that they can write about or talk about or you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, I've, I've written about this from uh, Popovich, Greg Popovich, the San Antonio Spurs coach, in a presentation he gave to a coaching conference specifically about timeouts. And he says that uh, that he huddles with the, the coaches away from the, the players uh, specifically to give the impression to the owner that they know what they're doing. And uh, giving at the same time, that gives the players the time to talk amongst themselves and to work stuff out. And then he goes back to the, um, to the huddle and says some version of uh, uh, Parker... Duncan, Manu, have you guys got this? And they all say yes or no, and, and he respond accordingly. And uh, but it is uh, we are we are completely all over the shop today, John. It's almost as if you were up all night watching volleyball, but um, could possibly be the case. <laughs> uh, research, you can call it research. Yes. Um, 
but it is a interesting interesting idea that to let experienced players solve problems for themselves is considered to be an unusual um, an unusual and even a risky uh, undertaking um, uh, even even at this point in uh, in history that the, that that is still the that's still the idea well and and that's actually one of the more interesting things and we joked last week I think or the other day about you know not having technical timeouts in the and the, the Olympics reduced opportunities for the spectators to see what the coaches were talking about. Um, and it was, it was meant to be, you know, it was tongue-in-cheek and all that. But there is there is an element of not necessarily what the coaches say because a lot of it is just variations on one thing. You know, hey, go out there and play better. Um, but this, the styles of the timeouts. Like yeah. Kar- Karch with the U.S. women has a very specific way he handles timeouts. Yes, um, others, others are more what you kind of expect. Hey, rah rah rah, let's go! You know, inside out, everybody jumps up and down. Yeah, team, team cheer. Um, but some of them just let the, like you say, like the leaders on the team, let the players talk it out amongst themselves. Maybe come in at the end and say one or two things, and then send them back out on the court. So stylistically, I, that's what I find interesting. And then every once in a while, you catch a. a uh, a bit of audio, like from uh, Giovanni Gadetti the other day, telling his outside hitter, "There is no four in the Olympics. No, there's no six in the Olympics. You hit four, or you hit, or you you hit one. That's it." Uh, which I thought was really funny. Um, I I've had quite a few conversations about timeouts in the last few days, actually, because watching so many games. Um, uh, one after the other, and I'm always very conscious of the of the um, the content of my timeouts. And I've had situ- uh, periods where um, I've I've hardly spoken in timeouts. I had groups group of players who uh, were able to work things out for themselves, Popovich style. Um, but I didn't do a good job of standing huddling with my staff to look like I was doing something um, but just in general because of this because I'm always thinking about it I, I watch closely the timeouts in tournaments from uh, from these coaches or the, the guys at this level and um, I made the comment to my assistant uh, yesterday that I every time I feel I should that I should have um, a loop a video of timeouts so just of coaches timeouts and every time I feel bad about my own timeout I should play that video on loop and just listen to the the best the highest paid the most successful the most famous coaches and the actual I think uh, banalities was the word that I used that they actually say yeah timeouts yeah I agree um, and this, not, this is absolutely not meant as any um, as any kind of criticism of them because obviously they know what they're doing and they've prepared their teams in in particular ways that the timeout is not the decisive part of the of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it is just interesting that that cultural expectation within sport that the that the coach's words are magic. And then the actual insight to listen to those words that they're not magic. <laughs> yeah, at all. 
All right. Um, trying to attempt to get us somewhere close to where we started this conversation. Uh, the, the, the thing that we're still, talk, we're still talking about volleyball. Yeah, we are. Uh, that, at least we have that going for us. Um, yeah. The thing that struck me about what Craig said was kind of the priority perspective. A big part of, of coaching effectively is knowing what your priorities should be right now. Uh, and, and obviously, bigger picture and all that sort of stuff. But that's that has struck me over the years as something that a lot of coaches just don't grasp early in their careers, you know, especially when it comes to training. They they pick you know, a bunch of games and drills that they think are cool and throw them together and call it a practice um, yeah. with no, all right, what are we actually trying to do? What What does my team need from me, from their training, from whatever? Um, you know, where are my priorities? Where am I trying to go at this point in time? Uh, so I think that was one of those things that popped out when Craig made, Craig made his comments. And my my because we're two different people, we have slightly two slightly different interpretations. So yeah, the yeah. the take the takeaway for me is is the reminder that coaching is actually not about the X's and O's, to borrow an American phrase. It's actually about the interaction between people, and you're not coaching the game as much as you're coaching the people in your training group. Um, and as such, you can't rely on any one technique or tactic or, uh, or anything to get through the day. You have to be open, you have to have that empathy and, and you have to be personally prepared to perform different functions at different times. And um, That doesn't mean going from senior team to a junior team, but that means inside the team you have to deal with different people in different ways. You have to deal with the team in different ways at different times. Uh, and that's all part of the, the wonderful tapestry that makes this job so much fun. Right. And kind of to paraphrase something Todd Maddox said, he said, he said there are coaches out there who have coached for 30 years but have very little experience because basically they've coached the same the same season thirty times. Yeah, and that they don't they just don't change anything. They just do the same thing year after year. Whereas obviously his impression is the good coaches to to develop and become the great coaches coach every season differently because they pick up on the things that are going on along the way. They learn from them. They they learn how to interact with them with this group of players and with these individuals as required. And I would like to think that the coaches that we've chosen to be wizards along this little particular journey are coaches that embody exactly that mentality. Okay. I think we can end there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and more, visit volleyballcoachingwizards.com backslash podcast. Got an idea for a future episode or want to ask a question? Send an email to podcast at volleyballcoachingwizards.com.